One of the things that happened last week, though, is I did cause some confusion. I emphasized the point that we're, as we go through this, that there is a lot of uh, disagreement. How are we going to approach it? And I emphasize that we're going to interpret it literally. What I did not do was explain what I mean by literal interpretation. And from the questions I got, I could figure out real quick, I did not explain myself very well. Would you give me just a minute to try to explain? When I say literal interpretation, let me tell you a definition of what that is, okay? Literal method gives every word the same exact basic meaning it would have in a normal, ordinary, customary, customary usage. It means to interpret in terms of normal, usual designation. If you change the meaning to something other than what the speaker or writer wanted it to communicate, you change the method of communication. I didn't give that definition last week, and I could tell from some of the questions that that didn't, okay? When I said interpret, you were going a different direction, okay? And literally, when I said interpret literally, people were saying, thinking something other than what I meant. I need to say something else, too. Uh, especially in this realm that we're going prophecy, and I, one of the things I tried to emphasize last week is Isaiah has a lot prophecy, in fact. And so we're going to be dealing with it, okay? Uh, in fact, Isaiah has more prophecy in it than all the other minor prophets combined. It is full of prophecy. We've got 66 chapters. A ton of it is prophecy, okay? Now, in prophecy, we're going to run into symbolism, types, figures, okay? How are we going to do that? Uh, I'm not going to interpret them, and I think when I say literally that it doesn't have another meaning, okay? We are going to, okay? There is a reason the Bible does that, okay? The Bible does that because uh, we're physical. God is what? He lives in a different world than we do, okay? So how do you communicate a spiritual truth to a physical person, okay? You can't just go because we don't understand what that means. So what does he have to do? He has to use a type or a symbol of something that we do understand, to, and he puts it alongside a spiritual truth to try to explain what that spiritual truth is, okay? That's what we're going to do, okay? We're going to try to find out, God, what are you trying to say? And most of the time, we're going to find the explanation right there. It's in, we use the Bible to interpret the Bible, okay? That's where we're going. If there's any other questions, don't be afraid to ask, okay? I hope that helped a little bit. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, would you please read with me the first five verses? It says, The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Verse 5, come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise that you're going to come back. Thank you for the promise of, Father, what's going to happen when you do come back. Father, I'm glad that you sent Jesus Christ. I'm glad that he's going to be king. I'm glad that he's my savior. Father, if we're going to understand your word, it's going to be because you allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. I would that you would grant your grace and your mercy to explain anything that would interfere or distract from you, giving us a perfect understanding of your word and what you want us to know. Would you remove it and would you give us power and wisdom and help us to represent you and your word well tonight? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. To get a flavor of what God wants us to know here, I want you to see two Davidic kings and what it looks like when a Davidic king does it right. I want you to take Isaiah chapter 2, then I also, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Kings and keep your hands in both. Because what we're going to do is we're going to look at two kings to understand what Isaiah is trying to explain to us here. He's trying to explain to us what the kingdom and what it's going to look like when a Davidic king returns and does it right. Israel, you did it right once before for a brief time. Let me show you what it looks like and look how it compares Look how it compares to what it's going to look like again one day. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. We're going to go back and forth because I want you to see how this compares to what we're looking at tonight. It says in verse 12, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 12, And Solomon sat on the throne of, his, of David his father, and his king was firmly, what is the word there? established. Then in verse 24, I'm sorry, chapter, chapter 2, verses 45 and 46, look what it says. And look for that word again. It's going to show up two more times. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord, what does it say? Forever. So the king commanded Zaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and fell upon him so that he died. Look what it says. Thus the kingdom was, what? Established in the hands of Solomon. Look at chapter 2 of Isaiah. Go back. Look what it says. The first thing it says, it says in verse 2, Now it shall come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, okay? That word established means to be erect or to stand firm. Now, Solomon's kingdom was established. It was made firm, but it was not permanent. The second Davidic king that we're looking at tonight, when he comes, it will be established also, but this time it will not be like Solomon. What does Solomon do? He loved a thousand women, and what happened? They led him unto other false god worship. God took the kingdom from him, okay? Things fell down after that. This second Davidic king, his kingdom will be established, but this time it will be permanent. Second thing, I want you to notice, Solomon, okay, so Solomon and the, Jesus Christ will both have an established throne. The second thing is they will have a defeated enemy. Look at 1 Kings chapter 2. And this is a lot of verses, so I'm just going to skip really quick, okay? What he does in verses 19 through 46, 
And what's going on here, if you read these first 10 or 11 chapters of 1 Kings, is the Bible is showing us what happens when Solomon's kingdom, what his kingdom was like, okay? The second thing that he wants us to know is that Solomon, in order to establish his kingdom, had to do something. What did he have to do? He had to kill his enemies. He killed, first of all, his half-brother. You go ahead and try to pronounce this. Adonijah. Adonijah. Solomon's half-brother, who twice tried to take the throne away from Solomon. He killed him. He dismissed the priest to get rid of Eli's line and to establish a new the line of Eliezer and Phinehas. Then he executed who? Joab, the commander of his armies. And then he had an enemy, Shimei, is it Shimei? S-H-I-M-E-I, who was promoting the kingdom of Saul over David. By the time we get done here, they're all gone, okay? When that happens, in verse 46, the verse, it says, so the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, when that happens, when his enemies are defeated, what happens? Then all the competition is gone. Then his kingdom is established. The same thing is happening here in chapter 2. I want you to see this. One of the things that Isaiah's vision is trying to communicate to us is that in order, to, in order to establish the throne permanently of the Messiah, he will defeat all his enemies. If you go down, we're going to get to, remember I says three times in this vision, he's going to go to Israel, he's going to go positive, he's going to turn the kaleidoscope, and he's going to come back to the future Israel. This time, it's negative. And when he gets negative, on the second time he gives us a picture of Jerusalem, what does it say? Verse 12, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted, and he goes on and on. You know what he's doing? He's getting rid of all his enemies. He's doing the same thing that Solomon did, okay? Chapter 3, number 3, justice. We have an established throne. We have a defeated enemy, and then we have justice. By the way, Isaiah is going to hit this again later in chapters 23 through 27, and he's not going to just punish the nations. Who else is he going to punish? I read a verse last week, and you probably don't remember because I ran through it so fast. His enemies don't just include the nations and the Arab world and all the nations that attack Israel. It also includes the angelic realm, and he talks about that in that section that I read, 24 through 27. He's also going to punish him. But next thing is justice. 1 Kings chapter 3, and there's not time to read this whole story, but do you remember that one of the first stories it tells about Solomon is a story that two women come, and they have a complaint. And what's the complaint? A baby's died, okay? They both have babies. They're both harlots. One dies in the middle of the night, and what does the woman do? She switches babies, okay? They get up. She realizes it's not a baby. It starts a fight. They come before Solomon. Now, here's the thing. Solomon doesn't know who's telling the truth, Okay? He doesn't, they didn't have DNA tests back then, right? So how do you figure it out? What does he do? He displays wisdom. He can't see. He can't hear all the facts. He doesn't know what's being misrepresented and what's, what is true. So what does he do? He uses godly wisdom to figure it out. And he comes up with what? He comes up with a righteous judgment. 
He says, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill her. She is his mother. And he was right, okay? A very wise judge. Look at verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 2. Look what it says about Jesus Christ when he judges. Verse 4, and he will judge between the nations and render decisions for many peoples. Then turn a few chapters over, chapter 11. Look at chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through 4. Look specifically at verses 2 and 3. It says, first of all, verse 1, I'm sorry, this is important. How does it call him? It says he is the stem of Jesse. What's the point here? He is a Davidic king, okay? So the point is, here is how the second Davidic king rules. Just like Solomon, look what he does. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Listen to this. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears by what his ears hear. You hear that? People can come misrepresent their case all the want. They can argue, won't have the best lawyers. Guess what? He's going to see all through all of it. You're not going to be able to fool this judge. This is a wise judge. Another son of David will also know how to judge, to get to the truth, and judge fairly. Okay, now another thing. The first judge, the first Davidic king. Solomon, what does it say about him in chapter 4? Turn to 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 through 40. Look at what it says about verse 29. Now God gave Solomon what? Wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Verse 30, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And then it goes on to explain how great it was. It says in verse 34, men came from all peoples to hear what? The wisdom of Solomon for all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Okay? It gives an example of this in chapter 10. Who, what, chapter 10, it says, who came from Sheba? The queen of Sheba came, and what did she come to do? She came to ask him very hard questions. When she got done answering all those questions, it says that when the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, there was no more spirit in her. Do you see how great the wisdom is of Solomon? But there is another in the line of David who will be even wiser and greater than Solomon. People will act the same way, though, as they acted like the Queen of Sheba. They will do the same thing. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. What does it say about this king? Isaiah chapter 2, and it says, verse 3, many people will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Why? To the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What are they going for? They want to hear the wisdom of a Davidic king. And the world and the kings of the world are drawn to him to hear the wisdom. When they come, here's another thing. They're not going to come empty-handed, okay? 
1 Kings chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, and verses 23 through 25. 1 Kings chapter 4, 10 through 11. I'm going to read just pieces of it. Let me read it to you. When the queen of Sheba came to hear his wisdom, she brought something with her. She gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such an abundance of spices come in as which the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God put in his heart. They brought every man his gift. And he's not talking about just the Queen of Sheba. He's talking about all the kings that are coming to see him. It says what they brought. They brought articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. Isaiah chapter 60 describes a similar scene. Isaiah chapter 60 Let me read pieces. It says, nations, when Jesus Christ comes, another Davidic king comes and establishes a kingdom. Look how it's described in chapter 60. And look how it compares to King Solomon's day. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. They will bring gold and frankincense. Skip on down, it says, the glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper and the box tree and the cypress together. When they come to hear Jesus Christ's wisdom, they're going to bring gifts. And it says that they're going to have to leave the gates of the city, remember there's 12 of them, wide open. Why? Because the procession is going to be nonstop. To get everybody in, they're going to have to leave it open 24 hours a day. That's how much gifts are going to be brought to Jesus Christ. Now, whatever you do, don't read verse 16. Don't do it. I don't want to hear about it, okay? When it says that you, I'm not going to go there, okay? It says you will also suck the milk of nations and suck the breasts of kings. And I know if I read that to you, you'd say, is he going to take that literally? No, <laughs> okay? That's a type, okay? Now, there's another thing. The Davidic king builds a temple. First Kings, chapters 6 through 9, Solomon builds a temple. 480 years in the year 1445 B.C., the temple foundation is laid by Solomon, okay? It's the first thing he does when he's established, okay? Now, look at Isaiah chapter 2. Look at verse 2. Now, we'll come about in the last days. We're talking about when Jesus Christ reigns. Look, is the number of first thing he wants you to notice in this vision. The mountain of what? The house of the Lord. Do you see it? What's the first thing we focus in when we look in this vision about the new kingdom? It's the what? Where does God live? It's the temple, okay? That's what he wants us to focus on. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch. When you see that word Branch, who are we talking about? We're talking about a Davidic king. For he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. Now, another point here. 
Ezekiel chapters 40 through 43 describe a temple, okay? A description of this temple is the temple that will be in Jerusalem during the 1,000-year reign. Why do we say that? If you go back to 1 Kings, remember, he gives dimensions, very specifics, okay? Take the dimensions of 1 Kings, Solomon's temple, and then read the dimensions in Ezekiel. They're not the same. We're talking about a different size building, completely different design, okay? Now, what temple is being described in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 43? It is not the heavenly temple because the prophet is specifically told to go to Israel. He's in the land of Israel when he's looking at this. It is not Zerubbabel's temple, the one they built when they got back from Babylon. The glory of God had not returned. And by the way, what did the old timers who had seen Solomon's temple do when they saw Zerubbabel's temple? What did they do? They wept. They cried. Why? It's not the same thing. Not even close. Okay? And it is not the temple we're going to have in heaven. Why? Is there a temple in heaven when we get to heaven? No. We don't need one. Okay? This is the millennial temple of the Messiah that he will build, okay? So, as by way of introduction, you see we have two Davidic kings here. Walk in the light, Israel. Walk in the light. Do you remember Israel? You're walking in darkness right now. Do you remember what it was like under Solomon? Briefly, you saw what it was like to have a Davidic king do it right. That's not good enough for you. You walked away. There is a day coming when another Davidic king, he will do the same thing as Solomon, except he will even be greater, and it will be permanent, okay? That's what we're doing. Back to Isaiah chapter 2, and let me outline this for you before we get, as we get started. Let me read through this for you. The first thing I want you to see is I want you to see, as we look through these first five verses, this vision, the first thing I want you to see is walk in the light, chapter, verse 5. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. When he gives this picture, that is what he wants us to do when we're done looking at this, okay? So keep that in mind as you look through this. The next thing, verse 2, the last days. This is during the last days. The third thing, we're looking at an exalted mountain. It says, the chief of the mountains will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. An exalted mountain. So in the last days, there will be an exalted mountain. There will also be a flowing stream. And it says, the end of verse 2, all nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, there is a stream of people coming to this exalted mountain. Then there is an invitation. Look at it. They will come, and they will not just come. They'll say, what? Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. They're inviting other people to come with them when they go. That's evangelism in that day. Why are they going? Because there is a teaching king. Look at the middle of verse 3. That he may teach us concerning his ways that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jesus Christ will be a teaching Davidic king. Then there will be a peaceful world. And we'll see this in two different stages. You're going to see justice 
and you're going to see worldwide peace. In verse 4, it says, and he will judge between the nations, and he will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. It says, walk in the light, the first one, walk in the light. What does it mean, light? If you have trouble understanding what it means by light, Isaiah, I mean, Psalm 43, verses 3 and 4 help us with this. Listen, look at what word he puts next to the word light. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lar I shall praise you, O my God. So what is it that's associated with light? The truth of God. In contrast to that, where do sinners like to hide? In fact, what, how would you describe the world that Israel is living in right now? Darkness, okay? They don't want to know the truth of God. They want to hide, not know the truth of God in darkness, okay? Listen, Israel, walk in the light. Walk in the light. Second thing, the last days. When you see that term, it says, it shall come about in the last days. The word in the Hebrew is A-H-R-I-T-H, arith. It means the furthest back or the furthest point, okay? In Deuteronomy chapter 11, 12, the same word is used when it says from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year, okay? So it's the end of the year is the same word, the end of a period of time. It means the last part of days, at the end of days, when time has run its course, these prophecies will be fulfilled, is what he's saying, okay? Listen to how Hosea explains what the Lord's Day is. It says, Afterwards, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God, and listen to, how, listen to this, and David their king. Who is that? It's not David, he's dead. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is a Davidic king. He fulfills the Davidic covenant. And David, their king, talking about Jesus Christ, they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. That's what's going to happen. These prophecies will be fulfilled. The world will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Now, the New Testament writers use this expression to include the first advent, the first time that Jesus Christ came, until the end of the millennial reign. They did not use it to describe the church age because they didn't see the church age, okay? But Jesus Christ came, preached and demonstrated the kingdom, went, and when he comes back, pick it up again. That's all the last days. Now, this last days that we're looking at now in verses 2 through 4, in Isaiah chapter 2, is talking about the kingdom, what Jesus Christ's kingdom is going to look like during the millennial reign, that thousand-year reign. What is the thousand-year reign? Let me explain that because we're going to spend a lot of time here. When does it start? You want to know when it starts? Jesus Christ told his disciples when it starts in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, the disciples have come and they have asked him a question. One of the questions is, 
when will you come back and start your kingdom? Now, that's interesting. They don't know he's leaving. So what they really are talking about is they mean, when are you going to come in your fullness? When are you going to start your kingdom? He asked, they ask him three questions. This is one of the questions he answers in verses 29 through 31. Read them. Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31. He tells us when the millennial reign will start. Verse 29, it says, But immediately, note this, after the tribulation of those days, it says the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. <clears throat> and then the sun, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. He tells us three things in those three verses. When will his kingdom start? What does it say? After the tribulation. Immediately when the tribulation ends, that's when it starts. The second thing he's telling us is that's when he comes. When he says in verse it says, and the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. We're going to see that over and over again in the Old Testament. We're going to see it in Isaiah. I talked about it a little bit last week. When Jesus Christ comes back, he turns out all the lights. And then this brilliant light, blinding, glorious light, boom, okay, against that backdrop of darkness. That's what he's talking about. <clears throat> Fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. What is that? What's the sign of the Son of Man? It's also in the book of Isaiah we're going to talk about in here a little bit. Does anybody know what the sign of the Son of Man is? Does the word Shekinah glory mean anything to you? The Son of Man, he's saying that the Son of Man is going to return, okay? The third thing that he's going to say here is he's going to gather Israel when he comes back, Okay? So it starts with the, at the end of the tribulation. He comes back in a blaze of glory, and then he's going to gather. What happened in A.D. 72 to the top ten tribes? What happened? The ten tribes, where are they? They're scattered. Who knows where they're at? Okay? He knows where they're at. He's going to gather them all together. What's he gather them together for? His elect. It doesn't say all of uh, Israel... He says he's elect because those are the ones that are going to go into the kingdom, okay? Chapter 20. I'm sorry, turn to Revelation chapter 20. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. This is where the millennial reign is described. And I want to look at this. This is what... He is talking about, in Isaiah chapter 2, this is the time period that this vision takes place. Revelation chapter 20 describes the reign after the tribulation. Okay, We saw he's coming back after that. What happens after that? Revelation 20 talks about it. Revelation 19 
ends with the return of Jesus Christ on a white horse, and who's with him? I'm going to be there. Now, a lot of you guys, if you don't want to believe this, and you want to say, Gary, you're dreaming, well, go ahead and let me dream, because I have already got my horse's name picked out, okay? I do. I, I made up a name. I don't want to get to heaven, and everybody's got the same name for a horse, and when I call a name... I invented a word that doesn't exist because I thought about this. I want my horse. God made me a white flying horse for me, and he knows I don't even like horses. So he's made something special for me, and I'm, when I come out of heaven in a blaze of glory with my Savior in front of me, I'm, and I'm not going to tell you my name of my horse because when I get to heaven, I'm going to go, boom, my horse is going to come to me, and no other horse is going to be named that name. I've got it all figured out. <laughs> Baptocostal. <laughs> okay, I'm having fun, all right? Let me have some fun. I'm looking forward to that day. I don't know about you. I, that's why I like interpreting this literally. I have a lot of fun. You guys want to give that up? Go ahead. I'm keeping it, okay? Look what it says. Verses 1 through 3. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of that dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for 1,000 years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he... Now this, I want you to catch this. This caught my attention this week. And he threw him into the abyss and shut him up and sealed it over him so that he would not, what? Deceive the nations any longer. Stop there for a second. Stop there. So that he'll stop doing what he's doing right now. What is he doing right now? What is Satan doing in the world right now? He's deceiving. That explains this world. It does. It really, if you want to understand what's going on in the world right now, there it is right there. We are living in a world that is being deceived. Now, I was thinking about this. I was watching uh, TV. And I don't watch TV like I used to because it's not what it used to be, okay? And one of the things that I have become convinced, and I see it, most of my TV watching now is I watch cartoons with Luke, okay? And even, and even then, uh, I have to turn off some of the cartoons, especially the Disney stuff. I'm surprised at how much of this stuff, I, I turn it off because there's a message there. I, watch, I tried watching a movie the other night, uh, Wow. I mean, in the movie and in the entertainment, you're supposed to have fun and relax and just chill for a while, but I'm sitting there and I'm listening. That's communicating the message, okay? It's everywhere. It's in the media. It's in entertainment. It's in what you read. There are lies that are being there, and I don't think, I don't think people are aware of how much they influence you. You're being programmed, and even in the realm of entertainment, we say, well, I don't... I don't think you realize how much we're being programmed. Something else here. It says that the day is coming when we, the church, is taken out. And the Holy Spirit, which restrains and holds back sin, is going to be removed. And what's going to happen? Satan will be able to deceive at a level, he says, even if it were possible to fool even the very elect. Now, there's a point there. One of the deceptions is who is Christ, because many Christs are going to come, okay? 
The point is, you can't fool a Christian in who Jesus Christ is. You can't do it. Come and pretend to be something that you're not. Say you're Christ. You can't fool a truly born-again Christian because my sheep know my voice. Okay? Now. But do you realize that we are dealing with a world who does not have that ability? Now, i got to be careful here because I'm going to explain something to you. I think it's very important. I do not want to come off as I'm better than you. But there's a truth here that's important to know. You have the ability to know truth that they don't. You see and you understand things, and they are completely blind to it. They do not have the ability to resist the lies of the enemy. And they completely absorb it. And when you talk to them, you can argue, you can have the best logic, the best argument, and you are wasting your time. They are completely deceived. Listen, if you want to get somebody to know the truth, there is only one hope for that person. They have to become a truly born again, dwelt by the Holy Spirit in their spirit, with their spirit repaired, which is broken in a lost person. Until you get to that point, they have no ability to understand the truth. Okay? And they have no ability to resist the lies of the enemy. Okay? Back to chapter 20. And it's Jesus Christ is taking care of his enemy before he establishes his kingdom. And it says he will not be able to do it until a thousand years were completed. Okay? So he, Satan comes along, binds him, throws him into the abyss. And then he gets a thousand years without the deceiving lies of the enemy. Now, <clears throat> verse 4, it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on his forehead or on the hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, somebody is going to be ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ during this millennial reign, okay? Let me give you a list. Give me some verses. I'm going to throw them at you real quick to give you a, a capsule of who is going to be reigning, who's going to be in that kingdom. It says, now who's, because it says you're going to be sitting on thrones, Who's going to be sitting on those thrones? Daniel chapter 7, over and over again, refers to Old Testament saints. It says it at least three times. It says they will be given the kingdom. Saints is the word. Matthew 19, verse 28, says the apostles will reign. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Again, the word saints. 2 Timothy 2.12 says those that endure, will, rule. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 says, overcomers will have authority over the nations. Revelation 1 says that the church is a kingdom of priests. And here in Revelation 20, it says those who are proved to be truly born-again Christians, and how do they prove it? Because they would not give in to the Antichrist and the word there means to have your head cut off with an axe. They would rather be beheaded than give in and do what Antichrist told them to do. They would not deny Jesus Christ. Very good. Now, if we suffer with him, 
We will rule with him. True. Okay. It's interesting here in verse 20. It says it's that the earth's courts evidently found them worthy of death. Now the heavenly judge will find them worthy to rule and reign with him. Believers will rule and reign with Jesus in the coming kingdom. And in Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, makes it clear that this will be on earth and not in just some heavenly or spiritual sense, okay? We're going to rule and reign with him. Now, some of this stuff starts to get fun. Listen to this, verse 5. It says, And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Now, here's a possible timetable of what's going to happen in the first resurrection. There's two resurrections. The rapture and the resurrection of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, then the resurrection of the tribulation saints. Now, don't hold me to this one. I'm not solid on this one. If somebody comes up with an argument, I will listen to it. The resurrection of the Old Testament saints. When that happens, I'm not sure. But somebody is going to be resurrected, and they're going to go into this thousand-year reign. Saints, okay? Now, I want you to think about this. Who is going to start the kingdom? There will be no lost person in the kingdom. But who's going to be there? Now, I'm going to be there. Now, when I be there, when I'm there, what kind of body am I going to have? I'm going to have a glorified body. All the Christians and all the saints who have died and have resurrected bodies, what kind, okay, what are they going to look like? They're going to be like Jesus Christ. Now, think about that. Okay, you're walking into the kingdom, there's no lost people, and you've got people running around everywhere in New Jerusalem, in this next Jerusalem, and they've got glorified bodies. They're, I think they're going to be glowing, okay? Uh, new, perfect bodies, just like Jesus Christ. Along with that are going to be the survivors of the tribulation, okay? We're going to look at that in Zechariah chapter 14 here, well, not tonight, but event, we're going to get there next week, Okay? So you're going to have these people still in their natural bodies who survived, okay? We're going to go in the kingdom together, and they're going to populate the earth at an exponential function, okay? The earth will know a population like you can't even imagine, okay? So what's it going to be like for a person living in that world, a natural world? What's it going to do to your faith and how you perceive heaven and how you perceive God with all these angels and glorified bodies running around. Think about it. A lot of your excuses for not having faith are going to be gone. Okay? You're going to say, well, I don't know if that's true. Well, you're going to have to look at it right there. You think uh, God can raise people from the dead? Uh, There you go, right there. Uh, You think God can give you a perfect body? There you go. Okay? You want to get saved? I see a really good reason to get saved right there. Okay? Do you see what it's going to do? All your excuses for not believing, we're going to live in an almost perfect world full of glorified people everywhere, and they're going to be the ones that are going to be ruling and reigning, okay? I don't know about you. I want to go. I'm ready, okay? I get excited about this. Now, verse, I want to stop there. I've already covered this other thing. I want to say one last thing. Would you turn to Isaiah chapter 35? I want to make one last point before we go. Isaiah chapter 35. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to explain to you what the millennial king is going to be like, kingdom is going to be like, okay? 
That is what we're looking at when we look at Isaiah chapter 2. We're looking at what the kingdom is going to look like during the millennial reign when Jesus Christ rules and reigns and comes back, okay? Would you look at verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah chapter 35? And it says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in wilderness, and the streams in the Arabah, which is talking about the desert. Now look at that. Where have you seen that? When have you seen the blind gain their sight? When have you seen the lame get up and walk? When have you seen the mute get their voices back? Where have you seen that? This is not just in the Old Testament. Where have you seen this in the New Testament? Where have you seen it? You saw it in the Gospels. What was Jesus Christ doing when he came here the first time? What was he coming? What was he doing? Isaiah says that's what the kingdom is going to look like. That's what Zion's future holds. Isaiah is trying to tell us what the future with Jesus Christ as the Messiah reigning, what it's going to look like. Well, Jesus Christ came and what did he do? He showed us. He showed us for his three years on earth. He showed us what the kingdom is going to look like. What did he do? Everywhere he went, what was he doing? People, this is what the kingdom is going to be like when I am king. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to feed you. All those miracles, what was he doing? You want to know what the kingdom looks like? Look at Jesus Christ's ministry. The king is demonstrating his kingdom.